Catherine Bigelow's directorial career is often recognized for its unique consideration of traditionally masculine subject matters from a more nuanced and deconstructive perspective. While her works aren't traditionally seen as overtly feminine in their uh, juxtaposition to masculine subjects, there's no denying that Bigelow brings some greatly appreciated inquiry into her mainstay genres of action and war films. She has, however, had additional success dabbling in genres of horror and science fiction as well, proving more than capable of flexing an aesthetically fantastical eye that categorizes her directorial bend. Bigelow is undoubtedly most famous for her 2010 Oscar win for Best Director, the first woman in the Academy's history to achieve such a feat. In addition to that accolade, she was also the first woman to win directing awards for the Directors Guild of America, the BAFTAs, and the Saturn Award as well in 1995. She's maintained a number of fruitful collaborative relationships over the years, including ex-husband James Cameron and screenwriter Mark Bowl, with whom she's worked on her last three films. Her career began, however, in 1981, with the release of her co-directorial debut, The Loveless. Transitioning from painting to the medium of film, Bigelow set out to make a low-budget biker project, which she later identified as having one foot in the art world and one foot in independent underground films. Bigelow's fixation on the lawless and the fringes of society carried over into her next feature, Near Dark, in 1987, a vampire-western hybrid which demonstrated great success for her directorial abilities in both aesthetics and action, but which failed at the box office thanks to the collapse of producer Dino De Laurentiis' production company. Bigelow would find financial success in her next feature, Blue Steel, which springboarded her into the mainstream of action filmmaking and paved the way for her breakthrough successes the following year. Welcome back to the Twin Geek Cast. We're here. It's just David and I again, um, starting something new. Um, we're, we're looking through uh, the filmography of Catherine Bigelow. We're choosing um, auteur directors, usually, that we have some vested interest in, that we both could find a little something in. Um, this was our first. Uh, good to start with a, a woman, especially one who's achieved so much. Right, certainly. Uh, and a filmmaker I think we've kind of had our eye on for a while, despite the the gaps in, in, in the work, you know, the, the, the length of time period. It's been a little while since we've seen a Bigelow film. And so maybe we're, I don't know, trying to, to get her back into the fold here by doing a whole retrospective. I think we played around with it when we kept looking at Point Break. Did we do a Point Break episode or did we just we did about, okay. We did eventually do a Point Break episode. It was... <laughs> we it talked was about like, doing one more than we did one. Yeah, that. yeah, and and we'll be talking about it again next week, I assume. Yeah, um, the so well talked about uh, between us. We just kept going back to Point Break, and that seemed like a natural place to begin. As a director, who I don't think everyone's looked through her filmography in total and examined like the different phases, and there we'll find there are phases there. Yeah, I, I think for sure, and that's going to be the the interesting there. But certainly, Bigelow as a name is uh less big for her films than for certain key films uh especially more recently um but uh, yeah i think uh in her early period obviously point break is the the more standout one but there are uh standout films even prior to that as we'll see in today's episode the first three films of her filmography you know the the 80s period i guess we can call it from 81 to 1990. I think we'll be attracted a lot to directors who have established voices as they begin. We probably won't go through many directors who have like a very scattered 
beginning, middle, and end. Um, oh, we'll, we'll see. There's certainly some I think we have on our minds that have like you know films that we know of from the middle period, but don't know much about their beginnings. But certainly filmmakers to make a big splash right out the gate uh, will will seem attractive to us because uh, because we gotta go through the whole thing. We yeah, want something yeah. right away that's a hook, right? We don't want right. like an empty first episode then. Right, you don't yeah. you don't want to slog through the first five films to, to to try and string together some kind of coherence theme, you know, throughout their work and just like grasp at straws until you finally get to a classic. And for you, the viewer too, or, or the listener, uh, the reader. What are you? A reader, the reader of the Twin Geeks, dearest reader. We don't want you to slog through our episodes thinking, are they going to get to what I care about? You know, so there's a there's a good balance. I'd be I'd be happy to start with the director as a strong first period, and then we explore some you know muddier mm -hmm. waters later on. But ultimately, I think it's going to be a gamble, no matter who we're diving into, True. because there's yeah. going to be films that not only we haven't seen, but probably lots of people don't know about, and that's going to be I think some of the fun of this whole uh, process is you know going in and, and talking about and exposing these films that we would probably never have even touched otherwise, um, and seeing how they then fit into a larger you know, piece of a puzzle. Do you have good Catherine Bigelow coverage? What's your coverage like before doing the show? Is it? Uh, I had body. Uh, I had I had two films uh, or prior that I could say for certain. Uh, three, I guess, if I really think back hard. Uh, and and maybe when like I saw the Hurt Locker when it like was initially a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, but since then I I I haven't. So I just had two earlier films, obviously including Point Break and uh, one today. Looks like I, I've got through a lot of it technically, but it should be good to piece it together in order. And uh, I guess I've got through most of it now, but uh, some of the earlier ones were my blind spots and uh, a pretty rewarding, pretty mixed as well. I think this this one this episode has a lot to talk about, um, despite the l less big names. There's at least one, you know, I think cult noteworthy one here, but the other two uh, perhaps never would have been discussed otherwise. So. This is going to be a, a, a good episode, I think, to really talk about some films. Yeah, I think it'll be a good introduction to our new show format. Of course, if you listen to our Christmas episodes with Murph, you'll know that um, that we began the format there, Rankin and Bass. We ranked all their works, uh, their Christmas specials specifically. Yeah. So uh, some directors will take like a chunk of their career and maybe come back to them. Maybe we could do like Altman and periods or, you know, um, there, we'll there's a couple we, we have might certainly like cause, but if we were to do this just you know filmmakers we could do in one you know monthly go then that would really limit our pool but yeah <laughs> yes again that it will definitely do some larger filmographies i think at some point but dipping our toes in here with someone with a reasonable what's it like uh you know eight or ten, nine ten, ten. Yeah, yeah some films like that uh that's that's gonna make it easier for us to start and figure out this format <laughs> absolutely uh, so we'll go through those first three and then like ranking the monsters in our Christmas special, we'll, we'll rank the initial works and we'll have that to compare yeah. as we go on with later episodes. The ranking part is mostly just for our fun, you know, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It, for uh, for ranking bass, I felt it was like a necessity, you know, we needed to find that definitive list. These ones are going to be, I think it's going to be more subjective ultimately for the filmmakers, but it's yeah. going to be fun for us. We'll <laughs> rank them by big or low. Those will be yes, our two ranking guidelines. <laughs> We never decided name, did we? The the bigs and lows of Bigelow. <laughs> I feel like point rank was the best that we could do. I I just nothing has been as attractive as that. Yeah, so, I don't know. Not it was, great, it was but... not not a good one to start off with. Maybe 
Maybe, I mean, maybe maybe it not being great is a good thing. Maybe it's uh, point point rank great. is funny. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm just got to roll with it because I I don't have anything better. Honestly, <laughs> I've been I've been trying. I wrote this whole intro, but I couldn't think of a good pun. <laughs> Big or low, um, we'll be ranking them either way. Uh, first, uh, we have a uh, the Loveless, which was uh, as you said a biker film. Uh, very grounded in the 50s. I think we both were impressed that you don't really need a title card when your hair and makeup is so immaculately from that era. Yeah, one of the things that, that like one of those big nitpicks I have about movies is uh, whenever they, they, they throw the information of like location and time on screen, just to let you know, you know, in case you couldn't pick it up. I think it's poor storytelling. Uh, there are times obviously when it's effective, but even the best felt like... Uh, that's uh, maybe maybe I have a bigger issue with that in Psycho than I do the analysis scene at the end. Is that there's the he tells you the date up front and stuff. And I'm like, ah, I don't need that. I don't want it. There can but, be like a time and place where you're like, uh, kind of globe trotting and you're you're cutting back and forth between locations. I could see why sometimes then you need a establishing uh, information like in a documentary when you're cutting between scenes of like uh, one one person in this like pod and then you go to the other pod and uh you want like a separation and, and to make very clear who you're framing now sure but, uh, it's not it's not a hard yeah. rule but certainly when it comes uh to the narrative films um you want to be immersed in what's going on and you want to see it kind of as this like this uh story that you're looking into so having additional information on the screen is always annoying but anyway this is a long-winded way of saying the loveless doesn't do that <laughs> yes <laughs> it's our way of saying this film doesn't and that's yeah. nice. It's uh, it's just a portrait of it's very clearly the fifties based on the the very you know specific dialogue. Obviously, the looks and the setting. You know, it's it's very well period detailed despite being an extremely low budget film. Um, it was made relatively cheaply. Uh, this is actually a co directorial effort, I believe. As I said there. Yeah, that's with, strange. Yeah, uh, and for all of these first three films, these are the only three that Bigelow actually wrote on and she wrote with a, a, a co-writer every time um, um monty montgomery was the co-director there yeah and this is the only project he ever directed either so um it's it's kind of hard to <laughs> gauge this is also his only writing project too so it's like it's really hard to know how much his voice is in here with bigelow's as well uh and how much that might influence our perception of it so much so that we can kind of just ignore it Maybe he really wanted to call everyone mommy and daddy in the script. Maybe that was, <laughs> let's take that as uh, Monty's influence here because we have nothing else to draw on. And, you know, um, I, I haven't seen any sources to the contrary, so. And it's Willem Dafoe's uh, debut film. Um, yeah. Which uh, I called him Willem Son because he calls everyone mommy and daddy and you were very confused, <laughs> which I was very pleased with. Yeah, uh, this is, he, he has cameo part he talked about in heaven's gate we, we saw in an interview but this is his first like actual credited role and it's a leading role and that's you know really surprising and also so you know uh surprising to see him start that late i guess like in the yeah. 80s i don't know we i think we think of willem dafoe as being such a prolific character actor that you would have expected him to pop up in the background of, you know, like maybe a number of 70s films before this, but now he just arrives fully formed on the scene in 1981 in Catherine Bigelow's first film. He looks like he's lived through a lot of, of film roles already. Like he, he looks so comfortable and able to hold the camera and everything. I mean, 
you know, uh, some people just take up a screen in a certain way. And Willem Dafoe already had that where uh, his presence was felt. Yeah, he's a real big draw of the film. And I think a big part of it's uh, it's charisma and allure. Um, there's a lot of supporting characters as well that I don't even really recall. Yeah. But, but Dafoe is definitely a presence that you can really take uh, take in. And he's uh, a, a central and driving part of the film that I think helps it uh, be such an interesting and entertaining work. I like it that he's uh, helping the lady out and you're like, oh, this is a different kind of biker. You know, he's uh, he's helping this uh, mommy out, as, as he calls her. Um, and uh, he just, what does he do? He fixes her tire for free and then he, uh, you know, asks for her money and, and takes it all anyway. Yeah, that's like the the opening scene of the film and it kind of sets the tone for what the, the, um, the spirit of these kind of bike gangs were in like the the fifties. This idea of like like rebellion and anarchy that they kind of live by. The very dangerous but still elusive and uh, sexual as well. I would say, um, you know, dynamics of the the, the bikers of the nineteen fifties. It was an interesting thing where it kind of started with the with the soundtrack at the beginning, and then it kind of clipped out for a minute. And came back like it would have a big effect or something but i'm not sure it established that right away so mm-hmm. uh there are like stylistic touches which are you know trying things and uh catherine bigelow maybe trying some things on um it does feel more avant-garde kind of as she said there uh in, in an interview um it's very much more kind of vibe driven than narrative driven or character driven even i would say there's definitely a plot to follow along but it feels incredibly inconsequential and that might be a product of the overarching sense of nihilism that the film uh depicts as well but it's it, it really feels like a weaker aspect and the film is largely held up then by the atmosphere it provides you know thanks to uh the performances the the locales and especially the score uh which was composed by robert gordon who's in, who the, also film acts in the film well. yeah yeah mm-hmm. and he's kind of like a neo-rockabilly singer and uh he kind of brings that energy into it it gets that 50s rockabilly sense of like a little bit of swing in the music a little bit of jukebox um and it it does play a lot around the around the jukebox around like that 50s cafe setting that smoky cafe i was telling you i remember i'm old enough now to remember that uh life when you could smoke in the cafes where uh the only difference between like myra and then is there was a smoking section in the 90s but i remember you know you can't like get away from smoke when you're in a restaurant right like right smoke it's... just rises to the ceiling and then spreads it's an enclosed space the concept of smoking areas in a building seems kind of moot <laughs> especially like an ihop like what are you going to do uh you know i mean sometimes you had them on separate sides of the restaurants but usually you had like a one section of seats and right next to it smoking section very funny in the 90s yeah and so 80s there yeah the film essentially takes place in this one diner that's off the road uh, the motorcycle gang is headed to see races at daytona beach uh, they never get there um, mm-hmm. because that's the nature of the, the the film. It's really all set in this one spot where violence eventually erupts thanks to their their presence and the the activity and the you know the inherent chaos that they're going to cause uh, in the, in the area. 
And, and again, it's it's not a specific chaos. It's not you know they're they're not rebelling against a very specific force. There's a, a dynamic with uh, a girl that they get involved with, um, and and that upsets you know her the, the father of the town and you know kind of these are all the name plot details that again ultimately don't have the impact that dictating them would lead you to believe it's it feels very inconsequential even as we lead up to a very dramatic uh ending yeah uh again at the at the end it, it doesn't feel like it has the impact that it uh on on paper supposedly states wouldn't but, you say it's mostly a hangout film that we're just uh hanging out with these guys and that there's like no momentum like tied to this cafe in a plot direction yeah, definitely uh, hangout vibes, but I, I, I want to try and articulate what, what the merits of those are, because it's easy enough to dismiss a film as like, oh, it's just a vibe, it's just a hangout film, you know, you're not supposed to actually care about plot or characters or anything like that, like, sometimes that's used as like a cop out for, you know, criticism of a film. Um, but in this case, I think, again, it's, th those aspects are, are merits, but they, they don't preclude the lack of drive that it has in other aspects of the script i suppose for me a hangout is a good thing in a film it's it's might be what i want in a road movie anyway um especially a road movie a movie about travel or whatever but uh i guess where the film kind of gets caught up for me is the lack of travel once you get to that that cafe that that lack of movement towards something um so in that way maybe it could be reductive in this case because i think the movie is eventually reductive and and doesn't quite lead where it needs to go um maybe that's that second director again can we can we put that one on money too <laughs> yeah yeah why not uh imagine monty's hands are all over the uh less exemplary parts of this film for certain this is big Lo's podcast not monty's he could take all the flack <laughs> yeah but it's uh, I, I would say the film shakes out um positive ultimately in the end it's uh again it's it, it feels more than uh, like a, a a first effort for for sure it's impressive for for a debut for someone who's never you know worked in film prior to now uh and and feels like someone who has something that they want to say what exactly it is they want to say about it is less clear but mm -hmm. you get the sense from the filmmaking the technique uh that that bigelow displays her work with the characters and the the performers especially I think this is very much a performance-driven film, uh, with Defoe being being a an incredible lead, and it really carries that in marriage with the uh, directorial choices. Because also it's shot nicely. Mm. Again, not not especially outstanding as we'd see in like some later points. Like I couldn't point to a specific choice, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, or anything like that. But everything is is composed rather nicely and it's well presented there's nice i think there's some good lingering shots like like the film isn't in a rush or anything by by any means <laughs> yeah i think that relaxed pacing of it kind of also fits like their lifestyle right like they're, they're like okay we'd be nothing without our bikes like who would we actually be and it's like that identity tied to that nomadic um man who might not have much going on once you just sit down with them I think yeah. that's okay for the movie and what it's yeah see there's definitely these aspects of of exploring the character and nature of the the lawless biker you know the the anarchist the people on the fringes um and and the film is doing a bit of contemplating there but it doesn't ever really 
land on these you know particular conclusions it's very careful to just kind of like you know float around all of that and so it's nice that it uh you know kind of dips into these it's a film that has more to say than just you know let's be with these characters for a, a bit you know let's listen to the the nice rockabilly soundtrack um but it also doesn't completely commit to that it's not able to follow through all the way so it's it's an interesting uh film i think that's worth the time to watch it was certainly enjoyable but it may leave you not entirely satisfied if you're looking for depth it did get us to do a double feature with the um wild one uh yeah. the 50s film so with marlon brando yeah yeah with brando in it, it because you could feel that there was a bit of influence there from what we understood of the, the wild one prior as a kind of quintessential 50s biker film. It was interesting comparing this with a contemporary example of the culture on film. Yeah. And and that one had, I think, similar advantages and disadvantages. It, it, yeah. had, its, it had its finger a little more on the pulse in terms of what it was trying to say. But I would also say it bungled that a bit more by the end. That's um, one where I'd say the direction mostly let it down, but the ensemble was interesting. The the crew of bikers, it did my favorite thing in movies, which is just cast people who do this thing in real life. Like just cast natural people who would uh, probably be this way. And I like that it starts in Daytona because in uh, Loveless, you're kind of, or wherever it, it, it starts at that bike race, right? And mm -hmm. in, in uh, the Loveless, it's like you're going to Daytona, but it might not be a road you're actually going down. Here they just go and steal the fucking trophy and you know take off with it and it's a yeah, lot the, of fun the first half I I didn't get yeah, the second half but yeah that, that I think that was the thing with the wild one is that they it up front seemed a bit more promising with uh, the amount of kind of like chaos that they were causing but it was it was less violent chaos and more like childish you know you know kind of chaos which felt right for what they were depicting there but again it, it kind of just spun its wheels for a while and and my favorite it, part of it was it said uh this is a, so a shocking story it can never take place in an american town ever again at the beginning then nothing like that happens yeah it, it didn't land on anything especially interesting and uh, i think the the biggest harm that it had in comparison here is that the it just wasn't as good musically you know yeah. the, the score the rockabilly score for loveless is i think uh, a really attractive facet of it that makes it very nice to hang with you know even if it's not especially complex or you know deep yeah going into the 50s too like the music is so much of the americana i mean it yeah it could really tie a bow on on any film from then yeah so the loveless is a strong debut from bigelow and it wouldn't be another six years another six years until she made another film with near dark in 87 which is a fucking cool movie i think yeah. uh, i think we both agree <laughs> i think part of it was we wanted to really do a near dark podcast but uh i mean just what a what a movement from the loveless into like taking like some of those western nomadic archetypes and then making it a vampire film like Oh, what a crazy thing while still wearing like all the leather and all like the biker you know swag from that yeah. loveless movie uh, but really doing like a stylistic genre exercise i mean that's so much cooler there's definitely a thematic continuation with the idea of the people on the fringes the connectivity between um you know the bikers of the loveless with the the the, the nomads the lawless vampire crew in near dark mm -hmm. and uh 
yeah, it's 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 a fantastic genre film that's a really exciting kind of a twist on vampire mythos and that idea with uh, a lot of really good production value into it and a really great understanding of uh, lighting, especially. I think it's got really uh, particularly uh, exemplary lighting. And yeah, I, I would also agree that this podcast endeavor is probably more an excuse to talk about Near Dark in a wider context since we uh, came across it this last year. We both watched it for the first time this last year. And I think the great thing is it's going to be a grounding. Like uh, usually we talk about something on the podcast, we have like our 20 minutes on it and it's over. But I think Near Dark will be like a grounding for everything we're about to discuss uh, in future episodes, whether it's in relation to this or or why did she go so different from this? Um, it's going to keep coming up, especially in the rankings. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's definitely going to stand out because e- e- even if it has some like, flaws to it which i definitely think it does um uh, particularly towards the last act uh, or so it's such a like kind of special film it's so unique and and likable in its premise and its execution and its characters um that it's hard not to have a big soft spot for it um this is made this was made just after james cameron's aliens and this was okay. about the point in Catherine Bigelow's career where she met James Cameron. Uh, she'd oh. marry him just a couple years later. That's so and... interesting. I, I thought about James Cameron so much watching it. Well, that's Very because uh, it, it, if you notice, there's like three cast members that are holdovers from Aliens right. in, in, in the film as well. And the film does kind of feel like Aliens with vampires as well. It's kind of got like a, a whole buildup of like that era of like Terminator 2 aliens, like that kind of badass action. Um, just that adrenaline and um, not adrenaline, but what would you say? Like the pacing of like that era of action movie is so specific and immaculate. I, I think what, what Bigelow herself has said is that she has a, a fascination with, uh, I don't know, I'm probably going to say this one, but like kineticism, like, like kinetic filmmaking, like something, yeah. you know, she has a interest in you know the movement and uh, in film and you i think this is the first time you really get a a huge impression of that because this is kind of like an amalgamation of a number of genres it's you know it's a horror film it's also you know got western aspects to it obviously and uh but there's also lots of you know kind of tour de force action filmmaking going on here um you know some really tense nice set of pieces there's a whole shootout in you know a, a hotel scene that's reminiscent of blood simple with the way the lighting is is done pours in there yeah um you've got the great the the sequence in the bar where it's it's a really nice drawn out basically it's a torture scene that's drawn out over a long period of time with these but it's really good with the tension there i mean uh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm glad she explored torture there so she could do it in, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, in, uh, we'll get to that. Dark 30. <laughs> yeah, like I'm saying, this will come up again, but. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's a very fun movie. It's so much fun because you've got people like Bill Paxton who are just, is just yes. hamming up his, his performance here as this kind of like, like malicious, like violence loving vampire who wears like uh, <laughs> who wears spurs and slices people's throats with them yeah uh, it's what i want from an 80s movie too uh, i mean it's it's ridiculously fun uh, good as a horror movie but 
also that that right combination of action horror and like you say outside themes westerns and uh, a little yeah, bit of the vampire movie in there it's a little western less in its uh themes and and more so in its uh, aesthetics it's you know it's a uh, setting it's characters you know the kind of mm-hmm. uh gruff aspects of it. and and again like the kind of uh outside the law aspects of the um the, the vampire tribe there they're they're all Western in, in that sense, but less in a neo-Western kind of traditional sense that you would think. I like but, a, I like a sexy vampire too. Um, rest in peace to Anne Rice, uh, who just uh, died recently. But uh, she did that so much to define like that that generation of like the sexier vampire, the eighties, nineties, um, with mm-hmm. her vampire series. But, yeah. Uh, well, this this came like like the whole idea of doing it as a vampire film came because vampires were kind of. In, at the time this came out the same year as lost boys did oh yeah it, um the schumacher film it does it actually totally does but for some reason that's the popular kind of cultural mainstay one and this is uh it, and this flopped at the box office <laughs> which is so weird like this is such a stronger picture and i mean it could be made by james cameron and go you know about the same direction i feel like it would be a, about the equal film Oh, I think um, part of the reason, as I kind of alluded to in the intro there, is that it was uh, produced by Dino De Laurentiis' production company, which folded very, very soon after. Mm-hmm. So I think they probably didn't put in the resources to to distribute it properly and to get it seen. I think it has less of like the, the specific 80s cheese that maybe Lost Boys does. Like Lost Boys is oh, like yeah. a special movie for, you know, not always the right reasons that this is always the right reasons. This is a good, thorough movie. And that's a that's a cheesy ass vampire movie. I I, I like Lost Boys for for lots yeah. of reasons, but again, in for for the Joel Schumacher reasons that, as we've said, are not <laughs> always are not always positives. Yeah. You know, Catherine Bigelow uh, reasons are different. Yeah, this is a very strong, very very striking film, and I think uh, w- one of the other important aspects of it, besides just the exemplary filmmaking is that the writing is also very well done the characters are compelling one of my favorite aspects of the film is that the main character caleb is utterly deplorable and and a horrible human being in the beginning of the film and the script is able to let to create sympathy for him like genuine sympathy through his his plight here even though he is uh, a, a manipulative you know you know uh coercer essentially that he's you know he starts the film off like being really aggressive and predatory in in his sexual advances yeah and it's really off-putting at first um intentionally but despite that you know you're able to you know follow his character arc sympathize with this horrible you know scenario that he's been put in being like turned into a vampire and being stuck with this raving maddening band of, of vampires his uh you know his, his struggle to res- like like resist the urge to you know give in to the the vampire tendencies his inability to kill somebody still when forced to, to have to do so to have to, to kill somebody in order to try and survive and he's still unable to at every opportunity and then ultimately kind of still getting together with the girl who was also you know trapped in that situation and that kind of abusive um band you know who were continually you know perpetuating this this cycle of violence you know and so so it's an interesting romance plot that kind of folds out of it out of you know being birthed in you know kind of this shared trauma or abuse together 
I really do like the vampire stories that exist within that trauma. I guess that's why I got into like Diane Rice and read all of those. And um, you probably like Diane Rice. She's like, oh yeah, I'm I'm, the foremost New Orleans writer of vampires. Yeah, I've seen I've I've seen like Interview with the Vampire, and I remember liking that. Queen of the Damned, not so much. No, (laughs) Alea is great, but uh, okay, yeah. Um, I like Diane Rice. I like uh, Lestat, the vampire. I like a I like a sexy vampire with drama. This is also in, in the same vein as that uh, what I want to see since there are so many vampire films like vampires I guess are just inherently cinematic we got so yeah, many of them and it's always interesting to see how someone's going to rewrite the mythos when they tackle vampires and this one's interesting but I think it makes a big boo-boo in in the last act and that it, it rewrites something in a in a very like just out there way and it makes me question the whole rules of how vampires function and, and one of the big plot points the twist that happened is that uh they're able to cure vampirism through yeah. a simple blood transfusion and that just makes me question everything <laughs> like how do vampires work now are they actually dead are they not undead things anymore are you being brought back to life through blood how You'd be does, very happy how, that we switch formats so I don't have to talk about Hotel Transylvania Transformed this week, <laughs> which is a movie where the vampires, uh, Dr. Van Helsing has created a contraption where he could use a, a ray on them to turn them back to humans. Um, so that also has an immediate solution. Um, but I'm glad that we're not talking about that. Right. Yeah, it's just, again, it's one of those things where I, I want films to to play with mythos and reinvent things and and shift things around but i need a logic to them that mm. works with the rest of what you're you're pulling from because the idea of of going into a vampire film is that we all understand what a vampire is and the set kind of rules and myths you know and the ideas that we have about these creatures same thing with anything else you go watch a werewolf movie you know when full moon comes out that's what's going to happen. You don't need to explain to you at the beginning of the film. These are baked into our, our cultural understandings. So when you play with that, you need like an answer to that. And it, the script for Near Dark just doesn't. It just it adds in the new idea that you can undo being a vampire by getting a blood transfusion. I mean, the, so, the, the interesting thing about vampires is it can't be undone, right? Like, so that that's a conflict like with itself. Right. And, well, and the transfusion thing isn't an exciting cinematic idea to like confront a vampire with but that's just no and it just makes it question everything like so then what makes a vampire more again it just makes you question everything about what it was like what we were perfectly fine suspending disbelief for in the beginning and accepting because of you know our our cultural understanding we're now investigating and questioning because you've introduced an element that doesn't jive with everything else that goes there again like so because we know these vampires are immortal we know you know, at least one of them has been around since the 1800s, you know, mm-hmm. as they, you know, state the character um, moment. But does it have to do with the blood then? Uh, <laughs> does he need a, the constant supply? Like, why does he feasting on blood keep him alive then? But as a human, it wouldn't, you know, yeah. it, it just it makes you reconsider everything you know about vampires because it can be just instantly undone like this. And it doesn't make like a light sexy or exciting. Which, no, uh, is what it, it should be doing at that point of the movie. It's just it's a it's a very cheap way to give the characters a resolution to mm, the, exactly the the problem that you can this this idea of that they have they they've in in a sense they're getting out of the subtext of it 
through through literal textual change, but that textual change doesn't you know work with the how everything else is set up, and so it's very confusing and odd. Then I, I I'm still fond of the ending though. We get like the Terminator truck scene and everything, and uh, like some good action pieces. I mean, this isn't like a, a fatal flaw of the movie. It's still a great movie. I, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's a caveat for yeah, the yeah. film. Like it, it, it takes me out for a little bit whenever I watch it again. Like I'm like, oh, that still doesn't make any sense, but I guess we'll roll with it. Okay, but it, it doesn't undo any of the exemplary aspects of the film, which again are all like the characters are still all really compelling. You got such a great band of actors here too. You know, uh, is, is anyone more underrated than Lance Henriksen? He's just so good. Yeah, he's good. He's good um, in like everything you put him in and really is a good ensemble here. Yeah. Jeanette Goldstein too. Uh, all three with, with Bill Paxton. They're from uh, Aliens as well. Uh, and, and I like the, the kid who plays the, the, the young old vampire. <laughs> yeah. Even the kid's cool. I mean, uh, I don't like he's, children actors. And he's, right. Right. We know, we know you don't, but he's very much not acting like a child. He's acting like a crotchety old man stuck in a, 12 year old body my favorite part is every time i say i don't like child actors and i'm like but this one yeah <laughs> i've never found one that i'm like i dislike this child actor i'm like i don't like them but i like this one <laughs> but don't go watch belfast that's my advice i think i think you're against them like in in, in principle cons- yeah, yeah principle yeah and against then put people putting their children in as a father i think i'm against in principle sure but. i'm uh, sure especially especially when you see like in cases like this where you got him him smoking cigarettes and stuff too right. it's a little like but uh, I don't know. I, I I have to assume, just on on a moral principle, that those are some special particular type of prop cigarettes, of course, that have no harmful ingredients in them, because they would never allow a kid to just smoke a regular cigarette in a film. That's no, never. That's that's immoral. So there's definitely it's definitely a different kind of cigarette that I just don't know about. <laughs> yeah, the wacky tobacco. <laughs> they call it the marijuana cigarette well from there uh we have a more uh less of a gap between near dark uh with her her next film the last one we're going to talk about today which is blue steel maybe there should have been more of a gap <laughs> yeah so uh it, it doesn't take much to to realize what this film is you can look at the poster and and get a perfect idea of what this is this is dirty hairy with a female paint of coat onto it you got jamie lee curtis playing clint eastwood she's a she's a hero cop fighting shit bags it's funny because i'd say it's halloween i'd say it's jamie lee curtis like inverted as the the hero and also the villain of halloween plus dirty harry like i think it's those things yeah, I I think that basically to me it's just it's the apotheosis of the '80s obsession with you know making uh, like 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 conservative hero cops yeah. fighting fighting what they deem as like you know street thugs like they they just have to dream up these you know un unbelievable boogeymen for the cops of New York to fight to clean the streets of you know 
and it's just it's it's disgusting it's awful <laughs> and it's unconscionable is what the, the film is <laughs> i think the problem with it there is that the subject of it is the fetishization of the police and the weapons that americans have but that's not what the film's about like it doesn't actually get into those things as like a, a text where it's not like against those things it just has them in it it's just a subject um but it is about it does have that it is about like fetishization it's just not ever drilling into what that means now the the tone of so much of the direction is just so overtly endorsing of everything yeah. that's that's happening that's here it. that it's really hard like and i feel like what kind of encapsulates this idea and what you're kind of referring to is that there's this recurring bit that the jamie lee curtis's character has in the film that whenever she's she's like asked condescendingly uh a couple times about why she wanted to become a cop and her answer is is this very sarcastic it's always sarcastic like like i think one time she says i just wanted to shoot people or i just wanted to bash some heads in and it's yeah. read you know she reads it sarcastically but the tone of everything around her and the direction of everything just seems to say yeah yeah that's what she should be doing like it's just reinforcing that idea on a literal level despite what the text is I don't know, like like trying to say, and it and then it really only says it in those few moments. So it feels more like it's a rebuttal to people, you know, <laughs> questioning her her motivation due to her sexuality or not uh, due to her, her sex, her gender. Yeah. Um, which the film is also not terribly interested in interrogating. It's not about that either, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not about her struggle as a as a woman to in a masculine setting like this which again is, is kind of like an interesting point for Catherine big girl Catherine, Catherine bigelow as a director because she has so far dealt with you know more masculine subject matters these bikers these cowboys you know and as we'll see going forward you know that trend continues this perspective she has of you know more violent and you know again more in, in, in these ideas of masculinity um, that put women in like the cop position into the military, all that. Right. And and so here we have her with her first female lead as well. And it feels not, not just, not only like that's not something she has an interest in exploring, but that she is, is very tone deaf in <laughs> how, how to write a woman character as well, which again, seems bizarre and, and, and antithetical. Like the, the script here, feels as misogynist as you know kind of any other cliche 80s action shit that you can think of so it's not always i guess about the the, the you know oh not always about the voice you get behind the camera i guess it, it's just it's dependent on how that voice is the film and how all these things come together and what Hollywood yeah, this is, women make, especially. Right, yeah. yeah. There, there's a lot of other factors that I do wonder how much they weigh here as well. It's not, again, it's not a film that there's like a lot of information about. Uh, it did all right. Uh, I, yeah. You know, I looked. Near Dark didn't make money, but this did. It turned over a budget. Uh, it got good reviews. Ebert liked it. Yeah, um, Cisco didn't like it. Ebert did. That's the thing that Sis Siskel is always the one you wanted to kind of listen to anyway. He had the more metered opinion on things. <laughs> he was uh, thornier. And uh, I mean, Ebert just like throwing his thumb up or down. He didn't have a, you know, don't listen to him, but, you know, uh, good vocabulary there. Good writer. <laughs> Take down yeah. Ebert. 
Well, one of the other huge issues with the film is the way it wants to like contextualize its villain. Well, very very early in the movie. Also, I I gotta say this as well that Jamie Lee Curtis is a terrible cop in this film. <laughs> yeah, she's just a fucking fucking worst. That gets uh, into my problems, which is all like character motivations don't make any sense in this thriller. Like, I mean, nothing really connects character wise for me at all. And it's it's a really I would say it's a really interesting film to watch in twenty twenty two. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the problem is I, I do like the direction I think some of it, it it works I mean it gives me thrills in like a constructed way where I, I'm following I see that you see, yeah. there's good action filmmaking going on here that's the one point of praise that I can allow the film is that the, the, the filmmaking itself is is well done uh, it presents things in a, in a thrilling manner uh, the things that it's presenting though are you know pretty odious yeah <laughs> Uh, uh, there's an early scene, very early scene, in which on her first day out and about patrolling, uh, Jimmy Lee Curtis's character notices the beginnings of a robbery in a grocery store across the street. And like very tensely, very, very nervously, she like navigates her way over there, abandoning her partner and just like unloads her entire you know, uh, <laughs> magazine into this guy's chest who's hey clearly like like un unstable they, they even like they went out of the way to like you know redden up his eyes to make it look like he was on something and it's and again it's the, the whole scene is framed as if this was the right action for her mm -hmm. to make and, and when you really think about what should be having seen it's like it's just he's a guy robbing a grocery store and you just fucking murdered him <laughs> and, and and then you also let the evidence get away from the scene afterwards it's like well Thing. And again, first first day on the job, and you, and, and your immediate instinct is to just unload completely. You are a terrible cop. <laughs> you need to quit. Yeah, I mean, then she's surprised that everyone's questioning her. I mean, she just got her yeah. gun and fires it right away. I mean, I, yeah, because you have the obligatory scene of her getting chewed out and put on suspension. You know, as these rogue cops do in these movies, and the, and again, like the, the tone of everything, the the direction and framing is all like. Yeah, but you know th this is the the restrictions of you know the law here. You know they're getting in the way of true justice. You know that's that's what everything about the film is screaming. Well, again, she just murdered you know this <laughs> you know a, a, a petty theft thief. Yeah, it's almost arguing for the law not to have those restrictions. It's it's a little gross. Yeah, so you can just just go around, you know, with with blind justice, you know, unloading onto people. And again, like the, even even if you want to buy that, okay, fine, that was the right action for her to make. The impetus for the whole story is that she murders this guy, and that allows this wacko, you know, on the ground to get a gun and then to become a serial killer himself. She causes the deaths of more people through her actions than if she hadn't done anything. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, she's inspired a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. That's why they won't listen to her. Yeah, and again, then the whole depiction of that character as well is just its own messy bag again of, you know, these are typical artifacts of the 80s, though, where the bad guys were always these, uh, you know, dreamed up, you know, psychopath lunatics with some kind of, you know, mental, you know, ambiguous mental issue that they can just kind of ascribe as being, you know, 
whatever. They they marry that with this the fact that he's like a Wall Street broker because, you know, it's the 80s and we don't like Wall Street. So mm-hmm. he's he's going to be both both a white collar criminal and like a, you know, a, a poverty stricken, <laughs> mentally ill, you know, person as well. It, it, the film is going to have it both ways, apparently. Well, I don't and, think either of us quite like this movie, but no, um, I, I, I absolutely detested it. I, ha- I have to say, <laughs> it was uh, probably more than you did. Uh, if, if my tone was not indicating that, <laughs> I think so. I thought it was just mediocre thriller that had some hooks of Halloween that interested me and Jamie Lee Curtis and our contextual understanding of like who she's been on screen, who her mom was, all that. Um, I, I like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. I think she does good. Again, the, the material she has to work with is very awful. Though yeah, her again, character's they, bad. She doesn't do bad. Yeah. Well, and th- there's a lot of other things. Again, like they they set up these aspects of character. Like she has like this relationship with like her father, mm-hmm. who doesn't like that she's a cop. But, That's right. And he's also like he he beats his wife, and there's like a scene towards the end where he where she arrests him for doing right. it, but then. <laughs> But then lets him go afterwards. Very confusing. It's it's good. It's it's like the the film wants to have character for her, but doesn't commit to it and doesn't follow through. All the character motives suck in this movie. I mean, none of them are make sense, and it's and there's pretty a, inane. There's a really really detestable part towards the end where they 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 try and frame uh, a, a sexual assault as an aspect of like a tragic motivation for a character. That's I think right, the yeah. I think the implication is that it that she was raped. It's like it's a little obscured, but that that seems to be what they're going for there, and that's that's just the, the worst thing of all. So much discomfort in this movie. There's and, uh, there's a se- she has a sex scene with Clancy Brown too. God, everything's <laughs> coming back to me now. And Clancy Brown is awful in this. Yeah, I just he is. I almost forgot about him. He's doing a terrible New York accent. It's just the worst. <laughs> I think all of it is so confusing. With I mean, we can't really figure out Catherine Bigelow's politics between this Point Breaker military movies. I mean, just like the whole picture of it's very in Detroit. I mean, we'll figure it out eventually what we think. But, yeah, uh, yeah. It's going to be a mystery to unwrap. There's, there's definitely like this is this is already this is some hints here. It's like uh. Is this something that you feel about, Kathy? Because uh, I, we might have an issue if this is like reflective of your own things here. But again, well, and, and I think Point Break is a very interesting juxtaposition because that's a <laughs> film that you, you could also like kind of categorize as like it's a you know it, it's almost like it's a recruitment film for the FBI, right. but it it manages to like disperse the idea and, and and also criticize its characters for going like off the books and being reckless you know it feels like the repercussions for Johnny Utah you know uh getting people killed it, they they feel real where whereas again here the the tone of the film seems to be dismissing you know the responsibility of actions of the part of Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Eventually she gets in a lot of trouble for like what she portrays on screen. She's like, yeah, but showing something isn't endorsement of it, but uh, you do have a perspective as a director and here it's a pretty messy perspective. So that's always, that's always the thing that people come to the table with. They're always like, Oh, you know, like, like showing something, showing violence isn't like an endorsement of it. And, and it's like, yes, definitely. And, and we need to have those depictions. But again, you need the, 
the tone there and the and the direction to have something to say. There's something about the, the language and the presentation of it that indicates approval, disapproval, or neutrality mm. uh, on, on a matter. Something can just be presented very flatly. And this is definitely like, this is full on supporting all of the actions of the character. Very blindly here, just complete, you know, cop, you know, cop porn revenge, uh, you know, <laughs> aspects here all the way. Uh, See, it's, what... it's interesting you were so against it but i read that as like part of the fetishization just badly perceived by the director like i i thought it was trying to like show like how shiny and gross those were in like the 80s movies right post reagan now and i thought it was i thought it wanted to comment on that i just didn't think it did I, I don't think so. I, I okay. think it was. I think it was fully behind. Again, like all all of the things seem to reinforce that. And again, the, the, there didn't seem to be any backlash against her character. All of all of the tragedy or, or all of the, the the drawbacks, the consequences manifested as external threats against her. And and again, they're specifically weaponized in a sexual sense uh, against her, which was particularly you know grotesque. Well. Um... I think it's time to point rank some of these movies. Uh, go big or low uh, with The Loveless. Uh, oh, I think we'll put The Loveless at the top to top? start with here. Oh, are you sure? Top, top, what if top. we put it at the bottom to start? Okay. okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's fine. Put it at the bottom to start. Okay. All right. Loveless at the bottom. <sighs> that brings us to Near Dark. So we have Loveless at the bottom, Near Dark unranked. Interesting. I think uh, I think we can put it just above the loveless. I think that's that's right. Good spot to start with there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think so. We'll move that up and uh, uh, on our uh, whiteboard here, um, rearranging the evidence on the on the board. Um, let's see. I'm. Uh, not sure where we put this next one. Where where's Blue Steel? This one's such a mystery to rank. It's tough. Uh, all right, you know what? Let's just let's start from the top and okay. go down. So Do let's you... put it in first. Is what you're saying? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm saying let's let's get fair. Like like <laughs> let's let's say. Uh, do you do you think Blue Steel is better than Near Dark? No, no. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't either. I think I think it's got to go below Near Dark at least. Not um, even nearly. Is yeah. yeah it's not even near near dark it's just i dark. do like these uh abrupt like mono syllabolic titles like near dark like blue, blue steel point break yeah zero dark is 30 right like i love that uh that punchiness that wait till we get to k19 the Widowmaker. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy um yeah, I think I think last place is pretty obvious for Blue Steel. We didn't have much good to say about it. I think uh, the initial ranking never as interesting as uh, the second third episode. Yeah, now this was this was pretty apparent ranking. Uh, I will be shocked if anything's worse than Blue Steel for me personally. Um, based on your your more kind of middling perception of it, there there might be something that gets lower. I don't know, but I I think this is a, a terrible, awful. Irresponsible film. So, and I think that good luck be... convincing me something is better than it, or something's worse than it. I mean, would you say we have a, a pretty strong, um, you know, above average film, a pretty strong uh, high bar, and a, a good low bar there? I think that's yeah, yeah. Funny. We've we've got we've got a good 
uh, I would say Near Bar- Near Dark is a great example of a great film. Uh, yeah, that's a very anything, high bar, actually. If anything tops Near Dark, you know we've got like a a good work to go through here. You know, yeah. and and there definitely will be. You know, I think so. Um, and if nothing does, you know, we've wasted our time with this. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> the Loveless is a good like like this bar of quality. Like this is a bar of, of interest. If something hits the Loveless you know bar here well no it's it's good films we're checking out you know uh and everything should be better than blue steel if it's not then uh this is the wrong filmography to tackle i think with your perspective on blue steel it's unlikely we'll we'll fit anything above it there but uh we we might have arguments but you know whether you know i'm not going to have a strong push for it because i think it's so middling and mediocre anyway and that's maybe the least interesting thing for me i'd i'd even prefer a failure that did a little more than blue steel I guess that's what I'll say is that it's so middling and uh, if, if average was, isn't a good thing for me. <laughs> you know? If I was to be as generous as possible with Blue Steel, it would still be a mediocre movie. It would still be just like a, a pretty bland in terms of its overall execution. Again, the, the merits are it's got interesting action direction, like a personality to it that's, you know, singular to Catherine Bigelow. And it has Jamie Lee Curtis. Like, well, She's not doing anything exceptional, but Jamie Lee Curtis is there, and that's nice. Well, we'll just have to see if any Widowmakers have any um, films without personality and no Jamie Lee Curtis. That would be good. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty in the dark for this next batch, aside from one one particular film, which uh, maybe people know our opinions about. I don't know. Well. Um... I don't. I don't know if I want to topple near dark anytime soon, but uh, I think I think we we might find out next week. Um, it would. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll figure it out. Well, we'll see if there's a, a breaking point for that film. <laughs> it would zero dark hurty me a lot to, <laughs> to topple it now. Well, we got some strange days ahead, Cal. So why don't we uh, wrap this bad boy up for this week? Absolutely. Um, do we want to do any plugs? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, let's see. I've got um, a charger over here. If you want, I've got. A power- oh, thank you. Uh, you have the. Yeah, the power- Wi-Fi power- in here. Also, I do. I, I do have. I do have right here. You need some. You need some Ethernet. I got an yeah. Ethernet plug for you. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, anything else? How about the site? You want you a site plug? Oh, the the website. Yeah, the yeah. twingeeks.com. Right, right. Our friends at the Twin Geeks. I wrote an article, uh, another letter to Ezra, so that'll be really sweet to get up. Um, we have uh, some podcasts. Uh, a few. I hear we have a few. Yeah, we have Ranking the Monsters with Stephen and I. We have, uh, I'm spoiling things. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of spoiling things. Like I'm thinking of, it's like the Kaufman things. film, but not. Yeah. Right. I mean, they just did an episode on House of Gucci, which uh, was interesting. They had differing opinions. Yeah, not that not ultimately not that different from as as Stephen was kind of building it up to be. They weren't that different opinions actually. (laughs) They just uh, differences of whether or not those things were good. Stephen just liked like Jared Leto a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. But it's a good show. I think you should. It was it was still it was still a good discussion despite the false advertising. On Raking the Monsters, we had Ben and Jack on this week. That's a that's a good show. Check out. Yeah. Uh, I just I just Japan. listened to that episode today. That was that was an interesting discussion. Uh, there was uh, what is it? Uh, Daydream Cash should have an episode in a week or two about is, our. Uh, is it coming 96. soon? I hope so. <laughs> we keep saying that. 
I thought we were recording in a week or two, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I, our, so, our gen- genuinely, genuinely, I want more of the Daydream cast. I want this 1986 episode because I know I it's going to well. be great. It's just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm waiting in anticipation. And uh, we have five letters, uh, three three mics. I don't even know that name of that <laughs> show anymore. Well, I, you know what? I, and I remembered it was the other way around this time. If I said it, I would have got it right. But five, know, five, five letters, letters, three mics. Something like that. You'll find it on Spotify if you can figure out what it might be the other way around. I don't know. Just try both. Try both and see what comes up. I think it's such a good uh, confusing title. I think it's a good thing that we keep going over it because I don't think anyone will know the title unless we keep stumbling over it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. We're doing this on purpose to make sure that you remember this. uh, It's it's going to be more memorable because we have to keep talking about it here. So instead of just like, you know, mentioning it real quick and then moving on. Yeah, we so. did uh, Kendrick Lamar. We'll do 50 cents soon. Cool. So that's uh, seven mics, eight letters. Absolutely. That's right. Is that all our podcast? Do we have any more? We have the um, uh, Stacks, which is Stephen and Jack. The video content's just gone up. We have Daydreamcast video content as well on the site. So uh, branching into a few different things. A lot of podcasts, Great. videos, articles. Are there- are there any other reviews going on? I know since we're not talking about new movies on this show as much, I won't be as <laughs> in the know, but I'm I'm so curious to know what's what's coming up, what's what's on the radar. I know it's it's bad movie season because it's January, but there's gotta be something, but right? Not quite because the schedule's so fucked right now that uh possibly there might be some good things coming out. Um I know like Cyrano's next month, and you know, there's still some like Oscar competing films that are kind of happening now. Pleasure is coming out uh next week, I think so. Um I'll be reviewing Hotel Transylvania, though, so maybe it is still January. And Scream <laughs> is coming. Kevin will oh, be. Oh, right, Scream. right. Um, Interesting for a January release, but maybe it's, it's going to be the only horror film in the field. You know what? The, I talked to our friend Aaron, and I guess every Scream film has come out in January. So I didn't know that. I didn't either. Well, there you go. You know. You're learning new things on the Twin Geeks cast here. Uh, what else? I, I'm, there's other movies I reviewed. Free Guy that came out last year. Um, did you finally? Exciting. Did you I finally did. fulfill that bet? <laughs> I did finally review it. Uh, so that should come up soon. Once you guys want to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting how nobody wants to edit Free Guy. I uh, don't know why. I should I should take a look at things uh, here soon. And I got a, a couple things in the uh, spout. Is that what you say? Set the turn for the hopper. Things in the spout. Hopper. Uh, I guess. I don't know what you on say. The line. Uh, Oh, that's why we run a podcast. Don't put all your eggs in one podcast. <laughs> is that the end? Yeah, it should, that should be then. Just end it with that. Is that the end? <laughs> I think that's funny. <laughs>